Welcome to the Berkhamsted Spotlight, Berkhamsted School's podcast channel. Join our weekly guests from inside the classroom to behind the scenes of our day-to-day activities through to life beyond Berkhamsted School. Find out what it's really like to be part of our remarkable community. Remarkable community indeed. In this episode of the Berkhamsted Spotlight, we're talking to Berkhamsted Girls head teacher Liz Richardson. Liz will talk to us about the values in single sex education, the benefits it has in a teaching environment, the well-being of the girls and their happiness in a same-sex environment, and how she responds to those who claim same-sex schools have become outdated. Liz will also talk a little bit about her own background and her experience, what school was like for her growing up, and how it's changed since. So come with me now as we dive into the world of Berkhamsted Girls School with the head teacher, Liz Richardson. Liz, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Simon. It's lovely to join you and hopefully to give you a little bit of a glimpse into life at Berkhamsted Girls School and in fact the whole of the group as well. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to all of this and looking forward to unpacking to find out what life is like, really, you know, looking at the school life through your eyes. But I wonder, first of all, if you could just give us a bit of an insight into where you went to school yourself, what part of the country or what part of the world you grew up in? I'm actually a very local girl. I went to school very close to here in King Sangley to a comprehensive school. I then moved in the sixth form to Watford Girls Grammar School and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there and then went on to university after that. So I think I had, in my formative years, I had experience of the state system, which I'm a great advocate of. I think that it's an absolutely brilliant foundation. So it was quite interesting for me when I came to Berkhamsted because coming here as a teacher was my first experience of a private independent school and so there Mm. were differences that I noticed but there were other things which are common both to state schools and to independent schools. So I've also been over the past few years involved with a multi-academy trust in London which of course is a state Mm -hmm. school so it's been really interesting and beneficial for me but also hopefully for the schools involved both this school and the other schools for me to Mm. see across all of the sectors. No it sounds like it it sounds like you bring a lot of experience to, to to the sector in that case and I'm just wondering then when you were talking if on those occasions where you might be at a, at a at a conference with various other heads, maybe a GSA conference or something like that, whether there's a natural presumption on the part of other people that you did go to an independent school yourself? Sometimes that's the case, yes. And I think it's assumed also that my whole experience has been actually in the independent sector. But I started in a, mm. a comprehensive state school when I came into teaching, mm. I absolutely loved the school and the reason I moved on was that there was a vacancy at this school and it was a chance for me to sort of further my own career and have a different experience. So I moved over Mm. to the independent sector. I've been working in the independent sector now for quite a long time, but it's really interesting when you speak sometimes to parents who assume you've always been through the system. But I think some of them Mm. find it very interesting that got experience of both systems. So what was it that took you into education in the first place? You know, let's go, let, let, let's go back to when you're at university and you're thinking about what to do with your life. Why education? I did start to pursue other 
career options when I was leaving university. I looked into commercial management, which I thought would be where I wanted to be. But after going to some of the interviews, I must admit I was put off completely because of the way in which they were commercially driven. You were expect to get performance. Mm. There seemed to be total sort of focus, and I suppose that's as it should be, the focus on the profit, on the way that the company worked. And it seemed quite aggressive environment to be in quite a profit-driven world and I just felt at that time I didn't want to. I'd done an English literature degree at university and I'd also in my early years been involved with the scouts and the guides and actually I'd run a ranger unit for a while and I suddenly thought you know I love English literature, I like working with young people so why haven't I looked at teaching? So it was then that I applied Mm -hmm. to do a PGCE went down to Exeter University and the rest is history. And I've never, ever wanted to do any other job because teaching Mm. is, I think, one of the greatest jobs. It's tiring at times. It's challenging at Mm. times. But there's one thing, it's never boring. And working with young people and with their parents, I think, is absolutely fabulous. That's interesting you mentioned young people and their parents. I mean, of course, you know, parents are integral in, in school life. Um, but it's great to recognise that 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 triangle, that that three-way partnership, isn't it? Well, I I like to think that we're a partnership team. It's a, a little bit like some of the sports events where you have the athlete, but then around them you have a support team. And I think it's really mm. important, especially in current circumstances, that we work with parents and we're the support team for the young people. And it's really important mm. for also the pupils to know that the school communicates with parents and vice versa, because then they know that there's a kind of a, you know, a support network around them. And so if they're at school, they've got us. And if they're at home, they've got the parents. And by the same token, the parents know their children really, really well. And so I think we would be missing something if we didn't, from time to time, ask them for their thoughts, their opinions, and actually how they see their child. Okay, let's talk about Berkhamsted Girls then, because at Year 7, Berkhamsted becomes a single-sex teaching environment. Why do you feel that this is a beneficial way for children to learn in school? I'm just going to go back just a little bit, if I may, and so that the history of the school is that I joined Berkhamsted School for Girls, which had the same governors as the Berkhamsted School, and then in 1996 we joined together as co-ed in the sixth form and co-ed lower down. And so we're always reviewing what we're doing. And ever since we came together in 96 as Berkhamsted Collegiate School, which has now changed to Berkhamsted School, we've been reviewing and making sure that the single sex education from year seven up to year 11 is still the right way forward. And at the moment, we feel that that's absolutely giving our pupils the best of both worlds, the single sex in the classroom and the co-ed outside the classroom. The other thing, of course, is, as I've said, although it's single sex inside the classroom, outside it's co-ed. So all of the trips and the clubs and the talks and the lectures are all co-ed. If you're in a school production, it will be boys and girls and year 7 to 13. If you're music, the same. When we have trips that go to different parts of either the UK or abroad, it's girls and boys together. And even our school councils are co-ed. So the boys and girls get together and they have their debates and their conversations as boys and girls rather than single sex. So they do get to work 
together and they learn how to work efficiently, effectively together. And I think there's quite a lot of enjoyment that they get from that as well. So it sounds like a great blend then between single sex and co-ed in the right time, in the right place. I think so, yes. And as we're moving forward, we look more and more at are there other things that we could join the girls and boys together to do outside the classroom. And we're looking especially at areas to do with well-being as well, so that the different forums and the councils and the pupil voices, they are all co-ed. So whether it's committees, whether it's debating, it's all together, boys and girls. Now, some people, of course, might feel like single-sex education is quite outdated. I'm going to guess that that's not your opinion, but tell us what you might say to someone who said to you exactly that, that, that it is outdated. What would you say? I would say you don't look at whether it's outdated or not. You need to look at whether it's affording each pupil, boy or girl, the best opportunity that they can have through their school career. And obviously, we look at research and statistics. We look at how our young people do here And the three main reasons why it's not outdated is there are some things that don't change. And one of them is that when the children go through puberty, they have a lot of hurdles to jump over. And if we can do one thing, which is perhaps to remove a distraction where there's sometimes a gender desire to impress in the teenage years, if we can remove that distraction from the classroom, then I don't think that's outdated at all. That's very current and pertinent. We see also that in single-sex education in years 7 to 11 that there is less gender stereotyping, that all subjects are girls' subjects, all subjects Mm. are boys' subjects. And if you look at the stats of the number of boys who take, for example, English in the sixth form, it's higher than the national average. And for girls as well, maths and physics to them is a girls' subject that there's no Mm. sense that this is a boy's subject or a girl's subject. So that's really another advantage of having single-sex education through years 7 to 11. And also there's maturity rates as well. And I think it's a fairly well-known fact that on the whole, boys' maturity is less than girls going through those years. But by the time they get to the sixth form, they've actually caught up and they're quite equal. So in some ways, when they go into the sixth form, I think that they are perhaps more on a level with maturity. They obviously by that stage have gone through their young people who are entering adulthood. So they're ready to work together. And they're going into a world that's co-ed. They're going into a world where I think Mm. I'm right, is it 51% Uh, of women and uh, 49% men in the world they're going into. So it gives them time to work and establish working relationships with the opposite gender as they go through the sixth form. Let's talk about happiness for a second. I mean, in, in what ways do you see girls showing that they are happier people if they're in a single sex environment? I think that it's sometimes quite a difficult world for our youngsters where there are expectations upon them and if they can feel relaxed and they can feel that they're doing things that they want to do in school I think that gives them fun and times to enjoy themselves and sometimes perhaps if they were in a co-ed environment they might feel that they can't enjoy some of the activities that they do whether it's a you know an egg and spoon race around the quad or whether it's just to get up mm-hmm. on stage and sing without any inhibitions about what they look like they just enjoy having fun together and they can feel very relaxed 
When they go into co-ed, when they're doing activities outside the classroom, they are relaxed. But I think maybe for some of the girls who are slightly more hesitant and maybe shy, that it gives them the chance to gain that confidence before they come into an environment which they feel is quietly, quite more pressurised on them. Sometimes you often hear parents talking about some of the benefits of for example, single-sex education, and then it turns out that they went to single-sex school themselves, or they might talk about the benefits of co-ed, and and actually, no surprise, they went to a co-ed themselves. Some people listening to this right now might be considering single-sex themselves, but they didn't go to a single-sex school when they were younger. What might you say to someone who might be sort of wrestling with their own natural, I guess, tendencies to default to what what they're used to from when they were at school themselves? I think it's really important that they look at school as it is now. Um, Some of the views of single-sex education, especially girls' education, have been formed by films and by um, all of the the books that we may have read when we were teenagers, and I think that's really old-fashioned. And although it's a single-sex education, as I've said, within the classroom, it's not outside the classroom. Is it old-fashioned? Is it out of date? Well, if you look at the, again, some of the research that's been done and the statistics, it, it's certainly there. We know that in for girls that they perform better academically in a single-sex environment during those formative years of year seven up to year 11. And so that's a, a good reason that I would say to look at whether this is right for your daughter. And I would say that it is. And what do you see as being some of those main differences between life at school, whether it's co-ed or single-sex, in, say, I don't know, the 70s and 80s compared to, you know, today in 2021-22? I think one of the key things, obviously, is social media. The expectation that we are supposed to post everything we're doing, that we are, we need to be liked if we put something onto Instagram or any other platform, that unless you're on TikTok, then you're not actually keeping up with everybody else. And I think that the teenagers of today have access to social media. And although we think, and parents might think, that they have a handle on what their children are doing, I think that we're fooling ourselves if we think that. So really, our role as educators and parents, I think, is to help them to understand both the way in which social media works but also the pitfalls we may not be as good as them technically but we actually have much better experience of life and we know that although it's on camera or it's something that's written on screen that actually it's still concerning some of the things that we have experience of and I think that both um, schools teachers and parents must be frightened of having those conversations with young people we may have to acknowledge Mm yes I'm not as technically proficient as you but I do have some life experience and I'm doing here I'm looking out for you I'm trying to keep you safe I'm trying to give you advice and I'm trying to help you navigate a world that's moving quicker and quicker And I think also the other thing in recent years is that we're working more and more in bite-sized chunks, that the ability to have a long and extended conversation or to try to explain why you've said something to somebody is not the same if it's in a few words on text or if it's on a few words on an Instagram account. And also that Mm. sense that we've got to be present the whole time, that we've got to answer immediately. I think the young people need to growing confidence to know they don't have to answer a post immediately that they can take their time or they can actually opt out of a conversation if they don't want to be part of it 
And I think they're all pressures which, when I first came into teaching, just weren't there. And the fact that they mm. have access to so much information and sometimes it's very biased or it's very one-sided. And again, you know, it's about us in school helping them to negotiate that and for parents as well to try to help them understand that what we're seeing at the top of the Google search isn't necessarily the best thing to rely upon. Do you think that children might at times model their behaviour on, on what their parents are doing? I'm just thinking about, well, actually, I'm thinking about the times where I might pick up my iPhone to respond to an email. You talk about the perceived need to respond quickly to a social media comment. But of course, at times, children might see their parents do that. They do. And I think most parents would be slightly horrified if they know exactly how much that their children have seen them or heard them do. And they do mimic parent behaviour. And I know that often when parents say, come on, why haven't you done your homework tonight? And the child says, well, I've been very busy. And they say, oh, no, you can do it. And yet sometimes when they say to their parents, can you do this? Oh, no, I'm far too busy to be able to do that. So sometimes when parents say, I wish my child read more as an English teacher I'm afraid my answer is and how often do they see you reading so it's the same with the social media and the use of the phone when we brought in our framework for digital well-being one of the things that we made an agreement with was that staff would model behaviors so I'm very conscious that although I carry my phone with me in case of an emergency, I don't text in the corridors. I don't look at the phone because I think it's just important that they, if they see Mrs. Richardson not doing it, then they know that's setting the tone for them. And also, you know, in our lunch halls and as we're wandering around, it's important they don't see us doing that. And I think it's the same for parents. If you say to your child, oh, you mustn't have your phone out at the meal table, and then a parent gets the phone out or say, I must answer that, that's work. I think it leaves a lot of the young people slightly puzzled, thinking, isn't this a little bit double standards here? Because your work's important to you, but my friends are important to me. So it's either everybody sort of abides by the same rules or not. I love the way that you mention or you refer to the fact that, that children's friends are important to them. Of course they are. And, you know, that's a very valid point. But do you, do you find that sometimes parents might want to have a conversation with their children, but actually their voices are getting quieter and quieter because the voices of the child's friends are simply getting louder and louder as the child gets older? I think that's true, but I think it's really important that parents continue to be parents, whatever the, the decade it may be or the year that it may be. I think that it's really good for them to have solid relationships with their children uh, but I think it's also important that they put those boundaries in. Um, I know that a lot of parents say well I don't like to take their phone away or if I tell them to leave it downstairs to charge they'll get angry with me. I'm afraid my response is very often yes I know but unfortunately you know that's the part of being a parent that sometimes we mm. have to do things which you know your children won't always agree with but if we know that in the long term that's best for them or we think that's better for their mental well-being that they have a break from their notifications and their whatsapps or whatever that go on possibly through the night if they allow their children to have them then they need to say I'm sorry but you know for the right reasons I'm doing this and interestingly when we speak to the sixth form or when we have students who come back to visit the school they will often say do you know what 
when I was being told this by my parent at the time, I thought it was ridiculous. But now I can see the reason why. And that's why often we ask our sixth formers to come and talk to our year seven and eight, as we did last week, about digital footprints and so forth. Because pupils will listen to them when they say, hmm. you know, this is really not a good idea, you know, learn from my mistakes. I think that's one of the most powerful ways in which we in school can be influencing the youngsters with you know, the safe use and good use of digital media and mobiles, it's going to be their future more so than ever. And we've got to send the message, not that it's toxic, but actually it's something which, if it's used in the right way, can be affirming and positive and a brilliant thing. Liz, I'm so pleased you said that because I was feeling a little bit conscious that possibly my questions were bringing down the positivity in this podcast episode. But actually, there, you balancing that out, showing that there's not just a light at the end of all of this, but real benefit that comes from it and also the opportunity for us to use technology in the right way for a more positive future. That's really encouraging to hear. I think if you speak to youngsters, they will often talk to you about their use of social media and of phones. And I think they will make you less worried about the future, that essentially they know what's right, what's wrong, and they have some brilliant ways of using it to actually increase and enhance their own happiness and enjoyment. And in some ways, especially over the past couple of years with the pandemic and lockdowns and so on, for a lot of them, it's caused them to have some really great moments and connectivity when actually if we weren't in the world of social media, we wouldn't have had that. So I think we've got to really focus on the fact that essentially children do do the right thing and they know what is good for them. But occasionally they will challenge us both at school and home with that. And we just need to keep saying, actually, no. <laughs> awesome. Now, you mentioned the last couple of years. Uh, two questions we always ask people on these podcast episodes. What have you changed your mind about in the last couple of years? I think one of the things that I've changed my mind about is that for youngsters, it's important for them to be busy all of the time and to absolutely fill hour to hour with clubs and activities and meeting others and joining sports club and music and drama. And I think it's absolutely important that they do do that. But I think that lockdown showed us that there is a great value sometimes in just sitting, just thinking. Mm. For me, it would be obviously reading and I would continue to try to send that message that reading is such a brilliant thing for young people to do. I think that when I've been talking to the girls, they've said, I actually enjoyed parts of lockdown because I wasn't being ferried around from sort of ballet to big band or orchestra to swimming training, that I actually had a moment mm. to sit down that I had a chance to go, you know, play with the dog or be with my cat or talk mm. to my sister or actually sit down and or go into the kitchen and do some baking with mum or dad, whoever it may be. And I think those unstructured moments where they just spontaneously decide how they're going to fill them are brilliant. So I've changed my mind on that. I think I thought that most young people, if given just a few moments, would just revert to the phones or, or going on computers. I don't think they do. And I think over the last couple of years, they've got fed up with screens and um, using different devices. And when they came back to school, the one thing they all enjoyed was connecting with each other. So I think the value of just connecting with other people is one thing and the other is the value of sometimes just being able to chill, just to have a space in your diary in your evening that's not filled with something because then you can think, actually, do you know, at the moment I'd quite like to do this 
or even just a reflective time. So that's what I've changed my mind about. I love it. Almost flipping from FOMO to JOMO. Yeah. Fear of missing out to the joy of missing out. I love that. And also, Liz, tell me what your remarkable moment at Berkhamsted has been. My remarkable moment must be the moment I was offered the job as head teacher. I still can't quite believe it. I still feel that it's an absolute privilege. When I was younger and I was at a local school, I used to be in, first of all, the Brownies and the Guides with some girls who came to the school and they talked about their school and I was so envious because it seemed as if they were having a brilliant education. They had so many opportunities to do so many things. And I kept asking my parents, please, 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 can I go to Berkhamsted School? And at one point, my father sat me down. He showed me his wage slip and he said, this is what it costs and this is what I earn. And so I understood at that point that I, I couldn't do it. And did I ever think I'd be here as head? No, I didn't. But what I'd like to think is that all of those things which I thought about the school when I was a youngster and thought it must be a great experience, an educational experience to be at the school, I hope that's what the parents and the children feel today, that they are getting a great time at the school with a lot of fun as well because we mustn't forget the fun. So that when the moment came and I was asked to be head, I just thought it was fantastic. It's such a privilege. Mm. And I know that you're only a guardian when you're a head teacher and you hand on the baton to the next person. But it's been absolutely brilliant. And I love it working with the, the youngsters every day. Fantastic. And what a great place to end this podcast episode. Liz, thank you for your time. Thanks for being here and explaining to us more about life at Berkhamsted Girls and telling us what it's like and for you to be running the school there today. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Simon. So that was Berkhamsted Girls head teacher Liz Richardson chatting to us all about the value of same-sex education in school. Thank you, Liz, for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It's great to hear from you. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.